following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We will be looking this morning in, uh, again in Hebrews chapter uh, 1, verses 1 through 4. And... Um, Hopefully this is not getting too redundant, but there's just so much good stuff here. So let me read uh, read from uh, those four verses again. Hebrews four, uh, Hebrews one, one through four. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has, in, has, in, has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Um, may re- remember our word for today. Pick up the word. I, the, the words are kind of camouflaged, actually. Uh, but you may catch the word for the day. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I missed it. It's the word pure, purity. Today we light the purity candle and... Um, it's interesting, Hebrews 1.4 talks about Jesus making purification for our sins. Uh, and we've been really unpacking this idea that uh, the writer of Hebrews says that in these last days, God has spoken through his Son. And what does that mean? And uh, we've, been, we've been saying that that revelation, that speaking, really is, is three things as we see in Hebrews 1.1-4. It is proclamation, and certainly Jesus came to proclaim God's words and to speak and to teach in, in, in words and teachings. Uh, last week we looked at uh, God spoke in Jesus as his being. That Jesus reveals the very person and nature and character of God in his being and who he was. Uh, and then today we're going to look at Jesus uh, in the revelation, the, the speaking of God being an event. And that's why I called it actions speak louder than words, right? It's, it's a speaking, but actions are a speaking, but it's a kind of speaking that often speaks louder than words. And um, that really is true. There is really some truth in that, that actions speak louder than words. And if you want to put this to the test, here's a good experiment for Christmas. If you don't believe this, you want to test this, here's a great way to do it. For Christmas, instead of doing something like buying presents, just give words. <laughs> Say, you know, kids... I just want you to know what a treasure you are to me, how we love you. And, and we just thought words would be enough this year. See how that applies. Or even better yet, try that with your spouse. Husbands, try that with your wife. Dear, it's going to buy you a diamond necklace, but I just thought the words were enough. Right? Uh, go for it. Um, actions do speak. And, and, and the reality is that uh, what God speaks, you know, a lot of what Jesus said, honestly, is quite mind-boggling. And uh, you read through his teachings, and they're hard. He says hard things. Um, what, what, what Jesus reveals about God and his person is even more difficult, because God is infinite being, as we talked about last week. 
But uh, for us, actions do speak loudly. And, and certainly the most clear and direct form of God's revelation really is in, his, in what he's done. It's the thing that we can most easily grasp and wrap our minds around. So we want to look this morning at four things that it says in, in uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, that, that God the Son does. And, and in these doings, in this activity, he is revealing, he is speaking something about the character and nature of who God is. So we're going to look at this this way. We're going to look at, at what he does, these four things. And then we're going to kind of ask or try to answer the question, what would it take to pull this off? Right? What, what would it take for God to, to do what he says he's going to do or he has done in each of these four things? So let's look at these. The first one um, says in verse 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, that is God the Father, has spoken by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, uh, which is something the father did, so we're going to skip over that when we could talk about appointing him heir of all things, but we're going to focus just on the things that God the Son did. And so it says in the last part of verse 2 that, that the, the God, through the Son, created the world. Okay, so that's a big doing. It's a big deed, a big action. Um, and essentially... Uh, God the Son is, is attributed as the creative, active agent uh, creating the universe, uh, or as I call it here, the space-time, time-space, space-time continuum. I may have got that backwards. I'm not sure which comes first. Um, the reason I use that phrase, space-time continuum, I think is what it's supposed to be, um, is that literally in the, in the Greek it says that he created not, not the world, but actually the eons, the eons. Greek word that can mean ages or epics, can mean a very long, long period of time, the eons, right? And uh, certainly in this context, what's implied here is not just that the, the Son created time, but that he created the cosmos. But what's significant is that he uses this very time-bound word to describe it. So it's not just that, that the Son created the material, material universe, uh, the machine, if you will, but there's really some sense of what, uh, what uh, you know, Einstein and, and recent physicists have identified as um, the space-time continuum. In other words, the universe can't exist without both of those things happening. It is not just matter that fills up space, but it's time that that space continues through this spectrum of uh, beginning to ending. And uh, the, the writer of Hebrews kind of captures that when he says he created the, the eons, Right? He, he created time itself. And it's a picture of his pre-existent being as the Son of God, that uh, God always was. But there was a time when God created time. Uh, a mind-boggling concept. So, uh, the Son is attributed with this great work of creation. All the universe, all the universe, both material and immaterial, is created through the agency of God, the Son. So what does it take to pull this off? Right? What does it take to create a universe? Right? Good question. Well, I, I don't really know, um, but, but I can assume certain things. First of all, I can assume that it, it requires vast intellect. Right? Vast intellect. Uh, and it really is mind-boggling. And you think about it, for, for thousands of years, the best minds of the, of the world, the best minds that have been produced, the most educated people, combined with... Uh, the most sophisticated telescopes and satellites and space probes and, and computers, 
struggle, struggle with all of our brain power we can muster just to understand the physics of our universe, just to understand the science of how it operates. Imagine the brain that invented it, and that's God. He created, he conceived all this stuff, these laws of physics and of nature that govern how the universe is ordered and operates and runs. And we see all throughout it uh, evidence of intelligence, right? The purpose that it was created with design and with incredible brilliance that it all works and all works so well. And of course, science would say, well, boy, that's just what a coincidence, right? But we know that it was created by a God who's incredibly smart, whose wisdom and brain power is infinite and endless. From the very sub, uh, subatomic particles that can't even be remotely seen to the vast expanses of galaxies and of space and of nebula, he created it all. And he did it with, with, with genius, right? With pure genius. Um, but on top of that, it, it takes more than just ideas. I have lots of good ideas. Um, and most of my ideas never actually never come to being because I don't have the ability to do what I can see. Uh, or the resources to do what I conceive. And it's too bad, because I really do have some incredibly good ideas that would just change the whole world. Me too. Yes. So God not only has the conception, but he has the power to do it. Um, And and you think about how this works. He he had the idea, he had the the power to to do it, but not only that, okay, because human beings are good at making stuff. We've gotten very good, and you think about the stuff that we have created and made. Uh, cars and airplanes and spaceships and satellites and computers. Um, if you've been to a, a movie recently, it's incredible that what you're seeing is this whole world of imagination that they have created, right? Because um, none of it's real anymore. In fact, I'm not even sure the people that are actors, I think they're all actually fake as well. Because it's just cheaper, right? It's all fake. But you look at it, it's like, wow, it's just stunning the detail of what they create. We are brilliant at creating things. Uh, But everything that we create, we create by taking uh, and building machines that can build machines that can make all this stuff. Even all that animated stuff is the product of of computers, of banks of computers that that can create this stuff. Here's the amazing thing. When God created, there was no machine to create with, right? Because to make a machine, you have to have stuff. You have to have matter. And for him to make the first atom, the first molecule, the first subatomic particle, right? There was no machine to build it. Uh, he made it from nothing simply by speaking it into being. Now, that's a kind of power and ability that is just mind-boggling for us, right? And we, we have studied, and we have scientists, we have researchers who, who study uh, how, uh, what, what is made, right? study the universe and its laws, what is made, there's no field of science, there's no field of study or research to conceptualize or imagine how something came from nothing. Right? You, want to, you want to write, you know, here's a good PhD dissertation, you know, there's your, your, your thesis, how everything came from nothing. That's exactly what God did. How, how is that possible? Well, I don't even know, I can't even imagine right, how he could take zero nothing just a concept and an idea, and it could instantly become existence, real stuff. And how did he do that? Um, did he go into his laboratory and, 
you know, experiment around a lot. That he, now it says it says he spoke it into being. Right? He had an idea, and he just said, "I like that idea. Let's do that." And boom, a universe is is created in all of its complexity. Um, cool. I mean, that's the Son. That's Jesus. That's the Son of God. He created the universe in a word. Um, second thing he does. Verse 3, it says, uh, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. We talked about that last week. Uh, and it says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, key word there is this word uphold. Uh, it, it's a Greek word that means literally to carry or to bear something or to carry it along. And it really has the idea of sustaining or guiding uh, the universe towards its, its intended goal or purpose. Um, in other words, the universe is not simply a machine that God made and hit the on switch and then walked away. And, of course, that's what the deists believed a couple hundred years ago. Very popular. They, uh, you know, when scientists began to discover and explain gravity and physics and how everything worked, they said, see, it's a, it's a closed system. It's just a machine that doesn't need any outside uh, input. It doesn't need any outside tinkering. It just works on its own. And so... If there is or isn't a God, doesn't really matter because the universe doesn't require God's care or attention or involvement. God can go, go on vacation because the universe just works, right? But the Bible says something very differently. Um, the Bible says that God is God the Son, specifically, is actively involved in the ongoing operation and running of the world. Uh, of course, much of it God does through the laws of physics. And um, it's not to say that, uh, that the laws of physics and gravity and all these things that scientists explain aren't real. They are. But Scripture would tell us that God is, is, is watching over and carefully and actively involved as the, as the universe runs. Um, and the good news for this, here's some good news. Uh, in spite of what uh, news reports will tell you, uh, because God is, is sustaining the world, because he's taking care of it, there is absolutely nothing mankind can do to break it beyond repair. Right? Uh, it's guaranteed for life. And if it breaks, we can take it in and God will service it. Right? So take, for example, global warming. And I'm not going to get into the debate, debate if it's real or not. It probably is. It doesn't matter. The, the truth is that we can't wreck the planet. Okay? No matter how hard we try, we can't do it. Because God, why? Because God's sustaining it. Right? He's taking care of it. He's going to make sure that it's carried along to, it, to reach its fulfilled goal and purpose. And if it burns up, it's going to be because God did it, not because man broke it. I love playing with toys that I can't break. Because uh, most things, as Nate will tell you, most of the things he creates, I break. <laughs> I'm good at that. Praise God. Right? We can't break his creation. He's sustaining it. Uh, but there's something even more than that. And, and it's, it's the reality that you know, when we think about how does God do this, how, what does it mean for him to sustain? What does that mean? How does he pull this one off? What's required for him to be sustaining the universe? Um, 
Well, what it, what it requires is a mind-boggling amount of energy. Um, and I, I, just, I had the most fun researching this. Uh, new science that I've never heard of before uh, that is fascinating. Um, and, and science has recently discovered, and I didn't, I didn't get this off of Facebook, just to be clear. Okay, I, got, I got this from NASA. This comes from NASA scientists. Okay, so however much you can believe in NASA scientists. But they recently discovered that the universe is actually not a closed system. And that it, it does not run all by itself like the deists thought, and like scientists of former times thought. In fact, there are things happening in, this uni- in the universe today that defy the laws of physics. Now, how many of you got that in science class? Right? Any high school students here? How many of you have been told that in science, that the universe is actually operating today in defiance of the laws of physics? Anybody hear that? Which is it's remarkable. Nobody hears that. But it's, it's true science, right? Uh, scientists know now that that the universe is not operating according to the laws of physics, and it's not a closed system, right? It's not operating the way they used to think of it operating. And just to picture how this works, imagine, if you're from America, imagine baseball. If you're from some other part of the world, imagine cricket, right? And, you know, either one, you take a ball and you throw it really hard, and somebody with a bat uh, of some kind smacks that ball, right? And what happens to the ball? It takes off and it goes zooming through the air, and it, in that moment, it defies gravity because you've applied enough energy to it that it can, it can overcome gravity and fly through, through, through the air. Now, how far does that ball fly? Well, depending on, depending on the batter, right? But uh, as it travels, it does what? It loses energy, right? Because you applied that energy and it uses up that energy. And eventually, it starts to slow down and it will eventually fall to the ground, right? Sometimes sooner than later, depending on the energy. Um, that's physics, right? We all kind of know that. Uh, now, cars and planes have overcome this by uh, having a continual source of energy applied. So a plane can go a lot farther, or a rocket, because you have more energy propelling it farther. But can a car drive forever? I'm, I'm living proof. Uh, when they run out of gas, it's over. They stop. And I've had it happen more than once. And really, why has anybody run out of gas more than once? That's just inexcusable. And I've done it several times. <laughs> You think, I'm really slow at science, apparently. Um, Everything runs out of gas, right? And so scientists believe that the universe, being a closed system, limited amount of energy, uh, worked that way. That there was the Big Bang and this explosion that started sending molecules and dust and debris and planets and galaxies through space. And they're just like that baseball as they travel out and out and out. They use up energy. And eventually, they said, it's, it's, it's slowing down, and the, the universe would come to a, a point where all the energy would be used up and it would stop moving, and everything would kind of come to a standstill. That's what they believed, um, up until 1998. And in 1998, thanks to the Hubble telescope, they made an incredible discovery. And it's really sad that nobody knows this, that I'd never heard this. They discovered in 1998 that the universe is not slowing down. Uh, it might be running out of gas, but it's not slowing its expansion. In fact, not only is it not, ex- uh, not slowing down, it's actually speeding up. Okay, so as the galaxies and planets are moving farther and farther from each other, they're actually moving faster than they were. And not only that, but the rate of acceleration is increasing. Okay, so it means it's not just speeding up at a, at a standard rate. It's actually increasing the rate of increase. Right? So, so you're all smart people. 
If something's going to go faster, what has to happen? More energy, right? If you want your car to go faster, what do you got to do? Well, either be on top of a really big hill, or you got to push down the gas pedal. Well, in essence, what scientists discovered is that somebody is pushing the gas pedal on the universe, and it's going faster and faster and faster. Um, and the, the coolest thing of all is scientists have no idea where this energy is coming from. No idea. Zero. And uh, in fact, the best they've been able to do is name it, and it's called dark energy or dark matter. I encourage you to Google this, just to prove I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Okay? Dark energy. And they know, and this is kind of some of the fun math that goes with this. It's just mind-boggling. They, they've discovered that if you take the rate of expansion and, and what they know about the universe, and people who are way smarter than I am can do the math on this, and they've said that to account for what's happening, all the matter, all the energy that we can account for and all the matter that we account for, it makes up 5% of the entire universe. 5%. So everything you see, everything science can see, everything science can dissect and analyze and observe represents only 5% of the universe. The other 95% is dark energy and dark matter. Okay? And, and they call it dark because they mean it's not, they don't know what it is. Right? There's no particle, there's no anything in physics and in matter that explains it. It's from outside the system. 95%. And they tell us that 68% of that is energy and 27% is matter. Um, and the writer of Hebrews says, he carries along the universe by the word of his power. Amazing, right? Uh, whether it's some scientific explanation or not, it is God, right? Scripture says it is God the Son propelling the universe forward towards its end goal and purpose. Right? And when you think about this, all the, so imagine the sun and the energy in the sun and the energy in the earth's gravity and the orbits of the planets, right? and then multiply that by billions and billions and billions of stars and galaxies throughout the universe. Okay, all that energy represents less than 5% of the universe. The other 68% comes from they don't know where. I think it comes from God, right? That's a lot of power. Right? That is an incredible amount of energy, right? And where does that energy come from? Well, it says it comes from the word of his power. So for God, all he has to do is speak. He only has to just go um, faster, right? Voice command. And the, and the universe speeds up, right? By the word of his power, he simply speaks and he sustains it all. Unbelievable. Just, just a, a side note of application. Do you think God can take care of you? Is God able to take care of you? Right? If he's sustaining the universe and speeding it up at increasing rates, and he's supplying 68% of the energy, not to mention the part he already created, can God take care of you? I don't know. Some of you are pretty need a lot of help, so I'm not sure. Chris, the question really is, uh, yeah, okay, sure, God can, but does he want to? Right? Sure, he's powerful enough, but does, is God willing? Does he really want to take care of me? Well, I think uh, he answers that in the next thing that the son does. 
It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The third thing that the son does is that he makes purification for sins. And the word purification, uh, it's, it really is Old Testament language that speaks of the idea of cleansing, of course, from sin. Um, and the, the idea was that when you sin, you did something wrong, it contaminated you. It soiled you. It stained your soul. So that there was a stain, there was a blotch on your soul that had to be washed and scrubbed away. And in the Old Testament, the only way that that, that stain of guilt could be washed or cleansed was through some kind of shedding of blood. So they would kill a bull or a lamb or a goat, and they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it uh, for atonement on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies to atone for the people, to cleanse, right? Um, And of course we know that Jesus made purification for sin. Um, He is the one alone who can... uh, who can do that. Uh, and, and actually Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 unpacks in great detail how Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of what the Old Testament pointed to. Uh, but let's ask again the question, what's, what does it take? Right? What's required of God to pull this one off? What does it take to do this? Um, for a God who can bring an entire universe into existence from nothing by just speaking a word, uh, removing, removing a stain can't be that difficult, right? How hard can it be to, to just deal with a stain? Uh, for a God who, who has such vast amounts of power and energy that with the word he can speed up the universe, how hard can it be to deal with some dirt? Well, as it turns out, it proves to be much more difficult. In fact, dealing with the stain of guilt was, was far more difficult than creating the universe. It is far more difficult and challenging than sustaining it. And that's because even God cannot do just whatever he wants. God's activity, his doing, is, is governed by his own character and nature and being. And in this case, it's not just a matter of God speaking a word and saying, sin, no problem. I just forgive it. God actually cannot do that. And that is because his own character and nature requires that he, he always does what is right and just. And justice demands that sin must be punished, right? that it must be dealt with. It can't just be ignored or covered up or thrown out. Um, it is not right for God just to ignore sin. And his un his, his moral laws, just like his physical laws, are unbendable. And so imagine in the physical universe, if God created these physical laws and he said, well, you know, for a season, I'm just going to suspend gravity. Okay. What would be the result of that? Well, the total end and destruction of all things. Right? You eliminate gravity, we're done. Right? He is bound, he himself is bound to operate by those physical laws. In the same way, God is bound by his own moral character and by the moral laws he's given. They're not arbitrary. Right? All the laws of the Old Testament, all the laws of the New Testament, come out of God's own moral characters upright in his being. And to break those laws comes at a great price. And justice is required. Sin must be punished. 
And the only way to remove uh, the stain of guilt, the stain of condemnation, the stain of death that comes about by sin is by the shedding of blood. And of course, the easy solution for that would be for the guilty person to shed their own blood. But here's the catch. The blood offered has to be pure. It has to be without sin, without the stain of guilt. None of us can do that because our blood is tainted. It's stained. It's corrupted. It's kind of like trying to take a bath in a mud pit, right? Okay? You can't clean yourself jumping into a mud pit. In the same way, we cannot deal with our sin by shedding our own blood, not for ourselves or for somebody else, because our blood is defiled. It is unclean because of sin. Uh, And animals are insufficient because they are finite beings. So that's one problem God has. This is just the second problem, though, is that God is a God of love. He is just, but he's also a God who, at the very core of his being, is one of unending, unfailing, and unconditional love. He loves everything that he's made, and he longs for us to be his children. So what can God do to satisfy the demands of justice and at the same time love his creatures that he cares about so deeply? Can he just speak it away? Well, he can't just speak it away, but interestingly enough, he does speak the answer. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, he, he says, But in these last days, God has spoken to us by a son. Right? He has spoken to us by a son. It is through his son, through his, through his living word, that he makes purification for sin. Uh, and it is, it is an action that speaks louder than any word. Right? In, in, in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, the writer explains what Jesus did this way. Uh, First it says he became man. In verse 14 of chapter 2 it says, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is the Son, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Partook of what same things? Well, the flesh. Right? Incredibly, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, and that's what we've been talking about. Incredibly, God united his divine, perfect, holy nature, infinite nature, with finite human nature in the body of a little tiny baby born to Mary. He spoke his son. And then it goes on to say, and he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So why did Jesus have to take on physical human flesh? Well, so that as, as the only pure and holy sacrifice, he could shed his own blood to make purification for sins. By becoming human, but also being divine, he was holy, but also able to die. And through death, it says, he delivers us who are in slavery. Another image he uses is in verse 16. He says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every aspect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. 
propitiation. Word we don't really use anymore. And it's actually a word that if people knew what it meant, they would like even less than what they use. Because it means to satisfy somebody's anger. It means that when Jesus died, he wasn't just simply dealing with our soiled, sin-stained soul, but he was dealing with the anger of God toward that sin. God is angry because of sin. Not at us, but because of the horrible effects of what sin has done to what he has created. It is his righteous and right response to be angry about sin. And it says Jesus appeases, he satisfies the justice of God so that there is now reconciliation between God and man. So, what does it take to purify sins? Well, in the end, it does take just a spoken word. But it's the spoken word that became living flesh and blood and died for you and I. He died for us. And this word was vastly more difficult to speak and incredibly, even infinitely more costly than what it took to create the universe. Amazing. Our redemption, our salvation, was not an easy thing. Creating the universe was a piece of cake. Saving you and I and removing the blotch of sin was incredibly costly for God. The last thing he does, number four, he reigns in majesty. Verse three says this, after making purifications for sin, he that is Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, It means that Jesus died, he rose again, and he ascended to heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God. And that's a position of authority, of rule, of reigning. Uh, It means that Jesus has the authority to rule and govern all things, all of time and space, all of the angels, all the material and immaterial, everything. He reigns and rules over it all. He has the authority, the, the right to do that. And praise God, he's there now in charge. And he's in charge. He's in control. He's sovereignly ruling over everything. Uh, it also means that he is the glory of majesty. And majesty is a picture of great splendor and glory, the very glory of God. And he sits at the right hand of God, uh, which is the highest position, not above God, but beside God the Father, uh, where they rule together. And this idea of majesty has implied in it the sense that the one who sits on the throne is worthy. He's worthy. Uh, in, in modern times, how do people get to sit on rules, you know, on thrones, on seats of authority and, and rule and government? Well, they, we, they do so because we pick them, right? We have elections. We get to vote. And the task of voting is to decide of all the possible candidates that are put before us, who is the most worthy? Right? Who is the most capable? Who has the most skill? Who is the most qualified? The most deserving? It's a tough choice. Right? It's getting to be an increasingly difficult choice because we look and we go, I don't think any of them are worthy. Right? I don't think any of them measure up to what I think would be sufficient for a person I want governing anything. 
And, and I'm not saying that I would be any better, because nobody's putting me up there either. Right? Nobody said, hey, we think you would be good. Right? What makes Jesus the best pick? Not that we get to vote, by the way. But he sits on this throne and he, he rules, and, and we need a king. We need a king. We need somebody who will take care and govern the universe, who will watch over, who will protect, who will make sure that it's sustained and reaches its final goal. It takes a leader, a ruler to do that. What makes him so appropriate, suitable for the task? Well, because he is supreme in wisdom and intelligence, right, in power. We've seen he created the universe. He has the wisdom and intellect and brain power to make it all. I'd say that qualifies him. Uh, He has the power and energy and resources to sustain it. I'd say that qualifies him. He doesn't run the universe by charging taxes. He pays for it out out of his own bank account. Thankfully, he doesn't charge us to run the universe. It would run out of gas really quick. He takes care of it. But more than that, he, he has the character. He has the righteousness and justice and love right, to, to rule it well. The very glory of God. And so in that sense, he is worthy to sit on the throne. right? He is worthy to rule. And, and, and really anyone who considers this carefully would say, there, there's no one else. There's no one else that should rule. There's no one else that should sit on that throne but Jesus and Jesus alone. So at Christmas time we sing this song. I'm going to quote the whole, we're going to sing it in a minute. But let me just highlight a couple lines. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. He rules, the wor- he rules the world with truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. The wonders of his love. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.